my name is Abby, for those of you who don't know me, and I have some announcements for us this morning. But first, I just want to talk about last week we handed out uh, these little random acts of kindness cards. And so we want to hear how that went for you guys if you did get the chance to do a random act of kindness. So um, if you did something last week, uh, take the time, find somebody, and um, kind of share if you were able to encourage someone. Because it's just kind of cool to see how our church is moving in the community. Um, if you are new or visiting with us, we are really glad to have you guys here. Um, we have a gift for you guys. Come visit me at guest services after the service in the One Cup Cafe. Um, we've had a lot of new faces in the last couple of years, which has been really exciting, um, especially for me and the Ulrich family um, here from the beginning of the church plant uh, six years ago now. Um, so we want to be able to kind of share more with folks who are newer to Rethink Church about um, why we're here, um, where we're headed, how you can get more plugged in. Um, so if you have never attended a Discover Rethink. We are gonna have one coming up April 16th after the service. Um, that is just, it's a quick kind of meeting after the service. There is a meal provided and childcare, as long as you tell us ahead of time that you are coming. Um, so you can go on our website, rethinkchurch.cc, and sign up to come to Discover Rethink um, and just take that class with us and learn more. Um, we are excited to see a new group of folks go through that. Um, and then also coming up, we have um, Holy Week. So we've got Palm Sunday, um, Good Friday. This year is going to be our first year doing a Good Friday service. It's going to be at 5 p.m. on Friday. Um, and then Easter Sunday as well. And we're just going to be exploring what Christ did for us because that decision to come and die for us was not an easy one. He chose to do that for us um, because he believed in uh, just redeeming us um, and reconciling us back to God. So um, we are excited to dive deeper into that for our Easter services. So come, there's um, probably going to be some eggs for the kids if everyone remembers to bring back their eggs, but we've already had a good chunk of people bring back Easter eggs, so um, that's going to be super fun. Um, and then lastly, um, this week is the last week of the month, and if you've been here for any amount of time, um, you probably know that that means it's our Mission Sunday. And so we get the privilege of giving a gift to this really cool agency called Destiny Rescue. Um, they um, work to rescue children from sex trafficking overseas. And not only do they rescue them, um, but they help restore them and provide services so that they can um, find hope and healing and move forward from there. Um, and so it's a cool ministry. We've gotten to rescue a lot of kids already as a church, which is really exciting. Um, so if you want to be a part of that, um, you can give online everything. CC, there's a missions fund, or if you want to give in person, this time we actually do have envelopes um, sitting at the table by the back. Um, write missions on them for us. There's a pen out there, so uh, that way we'll know that's specifically for Destiny Rescue. Um, and then also, of course, if you uh, call Rethink Church your home and you want to give uh, tithes and offerings to the church, um, you can either do so online or in the back. Um, we're glad you guys could make it out, and hope you lean in and listen to what Mark has this morning. Church. My name is Mark, the pastor of our church, and what we're, we're going to do today is we're going to drink from a fire hose. If you know that reference, you're welcome. 
Um, but we're going to go through a ton of material, and then we're going to kind of bring it all back together, okay? So in this uh, week, what we've been, or these last couple weeks, as we've been getting ready for Easter and stuff like that, we've been pushing through the book of Ruth, and last week we went through and started gleaning some things, and then this week we're going to cover chapters 2, 3, and 4. I'm going to encourage you to go back and read Ruth this week and see what you pick up, see if it's a little bit, uh, goes from black and white maybe to color, put it that way. Uh, so as we get into that, it'll be fun. So here's, let's just recap really quickly, and I'm going to run slides because I have a ton of pictures. Uh, and so it'll just be fun like this. So part of this process is what we re realize is uh, we have this family living in Bethlehem, and there's a famine in the land, and they can see into Moab because of where they're at. The house, the high hill country is where uh, Bethlehem sits, and it's about 30 to 50 miles depending on which way you go. And they can see literally the grass is greener on the other side. And so they decide instead of just like dealing with their own issues that they just hey, the grass is green on the other side, we're just going to go over there. And so they leave, and so there's a family of four. There's a Lumbleck, there's Naomi, the wife, and then their two sons, Macron and Kilion. And they go there, and they're about 10 years, right? And then tragedy hits. Or sorry, actually, they're 10 years, and then all of a sudden they find the Moabite wives for their two sons. Think about this, like, they're literally leaving, the grass is green on the other side, they're leaving this, and they're saying, hey, it's over there. And it's not just like, Let's just hang out here for a while. They become part of the culture, don't they? They start assimilating into the Moabite culture. And we covered yet last week why that was a pretty big issue for the for the, sorry, for the Israelites. And so Macmillan and Kilion, they find, uh, they find Moabite wives, and then Elimelech dies tragically. So Naomi is now left exposed, but she has provision from her sons, Macmillan and Kilion. And then eventually the two sons die. Right? And so Macron and Killian, they die. So now there's three ladies. They're left exposed, left without provision, without protection. Right? And so Naomi decides, hey, let's go back to the house of bread. This is the irony of the famine. Bethlehem is known as the house of bread. There should be grain fields all over the place. There should be amazing amounts of uh, food and produce. But the famine hits, right? And so these three ladies are like, oh, what are we going to do? Naomi is a refugee in Moab. So she's like, let's go home. Well, I'm going to go home. And so Oprah and her two sons, or Oprah and uh, Ruth decide, okay, I'm going to go with you for a while. But then Naomi changes her mind and pushes away the, the people that love her. We would never do this, right? We don't ever find ourselves in a place where we're like, we're stranded, we're, we're kind of conflicted, and then all of a sudden tragedy hits us and the people who want to love on us and care for us, we would never just push those people away, do Glad the ancient Israelites are the only people who have ever dealt with these kind of issues, right? So, Oprah leaves. Ruth, however, clings to Naomi. And in this clinging, the, when, they, when they tried to, what to go translate this idea, they couldn't really come up with an idea because this word in Hebrew is called hesed. And hesed is this loving, sacrificial way of life, right? And it's this, this, this amazing thing that they, like, they literally had to, when they translated from Hebrew into English, had to come up with a new, different word for them. And so this is what they did. And so Naomi and Ruth, they show back up in Bethlehem, and when Naomi, when Naomi shows back up, she says, hey, I don't want to be known as Naomi anymore. Naomi means pleasant one. I want to be known as Mara. I'm now bitter. I left my hands full with everything I ever wanted, but I came back empty-handed and all alone. Which, if you're Ruth, how do you feel? 
Ruth literally left her own country, her own family, and went, would, like clung to Naomi. And here's Naomi throwing a little pity party, saying, I'm all alone. God has abandoned me. He's turned his back on me. Except Ruth is right there. Right? I'm sure, I'm sure Naomi's the only person in human history that's ever done anything like this. Right? And so she's like so self-focused. She just can't see that literally Ruth is right there with her. Right? And then we get chapter two. Chapter two, we've introduced this guy named Boaz. Boaz is this, this amazing figure in the Hebrew. Like his name itself is mighty or strong or wealthy. It's a man of valor. He's a man, but he's he's given a descriptive word. He's a man of valor, a noble person in there. And the actual word itself, like he's supposed to be this man of strength. In this, in this community. And so if you look throughout the whole Hebrew scriptures, you'll see that name come up a few times. And it's mainly named as they uh, went into the temple. When they, Solomon built the temple, uh, they made, they made a, a, a pillar, the Boaz pillar. This is a crucial figure that every Israelite would have seen, right? But this is the name. This is the weightiness of his name that actually means a, a, a person of strength that can hold weight. And so Boaz is now introduced to us, right? And out of all the places that Naomi could have gone to, she finds the guy who is allowing people to glean in his field, which is a way of life for the Jewish people, right? Unless you're in the days of Judges. Because in the days of Judges, everyone did what was right in their own. And yet, you have this man allowing people to glean in, in his field. He's allowing them to say, okay, I dropped a sheep of grain. You can pick it up. It doesn't, I don't need to pick it up. This is, this is fascinating to us because if you look at this, it's crucial for us. Because in the days of, in the days of, uh, in the days of Judges, people just did whatever was right in their own eyes. And yet, you have this one man who's living completely countercultural, saying, mm, I don't need to live like that. This is the only way that Naomi and Ruth have provision. <clears throat> it's the only way that they can find food. Ruth is a Moabite. She's a part of a despised group of people. You talk about racial tension, religious tension, social, like all kinds of tension. Despised group of people, and yet she's living in Bethlehem with a lady who's now saying, I'm just, I'm so bitter, I don't want to be called my own name, right? So the gleaning process is this process that that requires humility. You cannot hide the fact that you're going to go glean if you're gleaning. There's not like this way to do it at night. Because what happens is the, there's passages all the way throughout the scriptures about what gleaning actually is and how to do this. And it's, a, it's an agricultural term that we don't really talk about. We talk about gleaning nuggets of wisdom. That's not really what the real term is here, though. So part of that process is just understanding what that really looks like. And so we're going to. Uh, go through that here in just a second. Um, and part of that process is there's three parts of it. So you, the reaping process is people would go through the fields, they cut the sheaves off and stuff like that, and then somebody else would bundle it, and then parts of the grain head would fall into the ground. And they would not go, according to the scriptures in Leviticus, they wouldn't go to the very far corners of their edges, and they wouldn't go over twice. And if, as you were doing this, here's what Deuteronomy says. Here's what God says in Deuteronomy chapter 24. When you reap the harvest in your field, and you forget a sheaf in the field, do not go back over it. Let, the, let it be left for the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you with all your hands, the work of your hands. Think about Ruth. 
Ruth fits two of those three categories. She's a resident alien, and she's a widow. And here she is, exposed. No way to find provision. No way to be, be protected. And yet, Boaz is like, hey, you're going to stay in my field, and you're going to go leave in my field. It takes so much humility to actually go out and do this. But there's so much hard work as well. So here's Boaz living within margin within his life, saying, I don't need to be so greedy that we have to go back over this field twice. My people forgot to pick up that sheaf of grain. We'll just let it sit there. And somebody else can go pick it up. Does that make sense? <laughs> so here, let me just give you a picture of what this actually looks like to do this, okay? So <clears throat> actually, let's go back here. So in, the, in Israel, there's two different seasons. There's a dry season and there's a rainy season. July through October is dry season. The fields sit empty. There's no way to be, like, you can't, it's like hard as a brick. You're not moving anything. You're not trying to do anything. So you just let it sit there. And then late September, early October, the rains start to fall, soften up the soil. And then you can go out there and actually use this, uh, this whole process and start working it. And then you plant the seeds. Barley harvest required, the barley itself, it takes eight inches of rain to actually start producing anything. Wheat takes 12 inches of rain. So there's two crops, there's two harvests going on here. And so in the book of Ruth, you'll see that Ruth gleans the fields of Boaz's fields for both barley and wheat. She's in the fields for two to three months, gleaning six days a week so that she has enough food. It's not a one-time deal, right? Boaz, is, this is his way of life. He's, he established it. This is, I'm just going to live this way. This is how I'm going to do this. He's a man of noble character. But Ruth has this work ethic that says, I'll live, you know, you know, like, I'll humble myself and go out and do this work. There's this combination that takes place of redemption and transformation that we see over and over again. Because here's the deal. Boaz, has, he, he's described as living with hessiveness in the sense that he'll, live, he'll let people glean in his fields. He lived with that margin. He's not so greedy that he has to consume everything that he sees. Ruth's Pessimist comes when she has work ethic. And she's willing to humble herself and put herself in a position to say, okay, yep, I need provided for. I need protected. Way different than most of us, right? Transformation is twofold. It's, two, it's a partnership. Without God, we can't. Without God, he won't. Or, sorry, without us, God won't. Let me say it again. Without God, we can't transform. Without us, God won't make us. He's not, he does not make us robots, right? right? So, in the threshing floor, this is a public use space. It's a high point in the village. And so all the farmers would get their stuff, and then they would have their own piles and say, this is my pile of oats, this is my pile of grain and wheat and stuff like that. And so you put it there. <clears throat> and then they took this little plank full of stones and bones, and sometimes anything else they could find in there, they just shoved this holes into the wood. And then you put kids on there, and you'd have a donkey just take it, literally just scrape over and over again, uh, trying to break up all the, the wheat and the chaff and stuff like that. So you're starting to separate. You're starting to break it up, right? And then the third part is the, literally the separating of the chaff. And so the people would come in with pitchforks, and they start throwing it up in the air. And because of the high winds, you would blow the chaff away, and the grain itself would fall down to the floor. Threefold part of this process, right? And so we see that Ruth is doing this over and over again. This is part of that process. And so that's in chapter 2. And then we get to this part where um, in chapter 3, like they've been there for a few months. 
Ruth is starting to catch Boaz's attention. And Boaz is starting to notice Ruth. To the point where, like, stay in my field, don't go anywhere, it's not just a one-time deal. And so you see this. And then Naomi starts to pick up on this. Like, oh, there's some things here. Now, I'm about to go through, and we have some kids in here. Parents, enjoy explaining this to your kids, sorry. But, <laughs> enjoy it, okay? It's not going to say PG. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Scholars have literally debated and decided what Naomi's plan actually is, and it's unclear. I'll just put it that way. The motivation, the intention is very, very unclear here. Scandalous is more like it. Naomi says, hey, put this plan into action. Let's go start doing this. And so there's innuendos laced all the way through this. The actual place of the threshing floor is an innuendo itself. So, let me just go through this and enjoy your lunchtime today. So, when you're reading chapter 3 where it says it's about uncover, this is an innuendo, innuendo about sexual intimacy. Okay? When you see the idea of, um, let's put this up here for you. So, when you see the word feet, it's the same Hebrew word for the sexual organ. Yep, you got it. So, uh, when the idea of lying down, it's the same, the same sexual, like innuendo of sexual intimacy. To know in the biblical language is sexual intimacy. What the crap is Naomi trying to get Ruth to do? Right? Is Ruth doing more than playing footsie with Boaz on the threshing floor? This is some weird, like, if you're reading through this, this is like, whoa. And, and uh, Betsy described this whole book as a chick flick. And I was like, yeah, but there's some weird, like, this is not a Hallmark version chick flick. You know what I mean? Like, there's some other levels here. You know what I mean? And so the, the word that you can translate the Hebrew word, the Hebrew word for uh, feet is also the same word that you see for lower limb, for the sexual organs, and all that. The threshing floor itself is this place, it's a public use space, right? And in this public use space, what you would do is it would be uh, village owned, and so you would take your, your grain piles and you put it all there. And so, because you didn't want the raiders and people stealing your grain, you slept there. And usually one person would just sleep there. So the man of the house would sleep there to protect his grains. Which is also the place where prostitutes would come and service the men. It's the perfect place. You're away from your family. Who's going to know? Keep it quiet. It's dark. And all of that. Right? What stays at the threshing floor, or what happens at the threshing floor, stays at the threshing floor. Right? That's this concept. To the point where the prophet Hosea even says this. Like, God himself says this to the prophet Hosea. says this, Do not rejoice, O Israel, the jubilant like the other nations, for you have been unfaithful to your God. You love the wages of a prostitute at the threshing floor. Like, this is a known place for scandalous things to take place. And yet, this is what Naomi says. Your little spidey sense should go off, right? There should be like, what the crap is going on here? I wish the Bible would talk about all other things. I wish it was just like this thing that talked about real life. Right? Except when you look at the big picture. Because every single word is like an overstuffed suitcase in the Hebrew language. 
There's so many meaning. There's so much like depth to it. You can't just take the word at itself at surface level. Does that make sense? You have to use the whole scripture. Ruth herself. So Boaz is named in chapter 2 as this man of valor, this man of noble character. Ruth in chapter 3, verse 11, is known, is listed as a lady of woman, or sorry, a woman of noble character. It's not like, it's not just that she's nice, she has a good work ethic, she's a person of noble character. It's these two phrases in the Hebrew that mirror each other. There's a feminine version and there's a male version. And these two individuals are called men and women of valor and of noble character. Their reputation, the way they live their lives, brings them above reproach. While all these other things could be going on here, I think because of their character and the way they live their life, it brings them above everything else. And to the point where, yep, there could have been scandalous things that took place. And who, like, who knows what actually took place on that, on that place, on the threshing floor. Do we live our lives that way? Or if there's any ounce or glimpse of, like, scandal, would it derail your life? Let's move on. So I think it's fascinating. The Protestant way that we order our Bible, we have Judges and then Ruth. And in the Hebrew version, the ordering of the Bible is the book of Proverbs and then Ruth. And if you've grown up in the church, how does he, how did Proverbs chapter 31 end? It's a description of woman of great value of noble character. And it's this whole description, right? And then we see this played out in Ruth's life. I think there's some fascination to it, the way you look at it. It's just like, maybe the rabbis are onto something, why they ordered the things the way they ordered it. Yeah. Right? So, let's go to chapter 4. Boaz now, he like, has his knife on the threshing floor, and he's like, man, I want to redeem this lady. Right? And so he goes to the place where all these, all these kind of decisions would be made, and this is at the city gate. This is the city gate of Gezer. It's in the northern part, northern part of Israel. This is a six-chambered gate. Uh, you can see the size of it. These stones are massive. Uh, when we were there, I accidentally fell into the sewage. It wasn't great. I didn't know it. But I was like, hey, it's been a thousand years or so. I hope it's fine, right? Um, because, like, you can kind of see it's not as overgrown. But when we were there, it was overgrown to the point where you couldn't really see the stones and the, and the ditches and stuff like that. And so, uh, I accidentally was falling down. This is the place where the foot traffic took place. So, like, if you wanted business and stuff like that, you could set your little, if you were a person of value and, and elder type thing, you could set a booth up there, but you didn't really need to. This is also where it's like, think about Chamber of Commerce, the courts, and all that took place within the city gate. And peaceful times. In the, in the war times, they filled it up with stones and everything else and barricaded it so that enemies didn't get in. But in peaceful times, they would be open foot traffic, business, chamber of commerce, all that kind of stuff. And so, Boaz, he goes to the city gate because he's an elder. A teenage boy would never walk into the city gate saying any of this. A man of lesser value would have never walked into this place. He can walk into this place because he's a man of character, a man of valor, a noble man, right? And so, they would have set up these benches so that the elders could sit. <coughs> So that they could sit here and take care of the daily business that was going to happen. So here's the benches of the Gezer Belt uh, city gates, and so they were there. And he's a he's, Boaz is going to take the role of like Goel. Of Goel is a person of redemption. 
It's a person who's literally going to say, I'm going to take on the responsibility of providing and protecting these, this lady. Now, there's some nuanced details. We're not going to have time to get into the radical of what this actually looks like plays out. Uh, but uh, Boaz is saying, I'm going to take on this responsibility. We're going to sell Naomi's plot of land that she has. Think, think about this culturally. Naomi has a plot of land that she owns, but she legally cannot farm on it. Because she's a woman. The other part of it, her family abandoned it at least 10 years ago. They left Bethlehem to go to Moab. It's a plot of land empty. They're not stupid. They're not going to let it sit there. They're going to farm it and take care of it and reap the benefits of it. But she owns it. And now that she's back, now she needs a male person to come in and redeem it. But what they're, the whole plan that they're going to do is Boaz is saying, hey, we're going to sell this plot of land, and Naomi will live off of the benefits of that and provide for her financially that way. Ruth, however, needs to have somebody redeem her. She has rights to the land, but she's not. there's no way they're selling this to a Moabite. Like, that's not going to happen. It's like, we would never do business with a Canadian because they're from Canada. Right? Like, why? So, all that to say, uh, so Boaz is like, hey, let's take this role on, let's do this. So she goes, he goes to the city, he has the conversation. There's another near relative who has rights to it. And so when Boaz lays out the plan, he's like, hey, this field comes, it just needs redeemed. And the guy's like, sweet, I'll do that. I'll buy this field, right? And I'll provide for Naomi and all that. That's not a big deal. But then Boaz brings up, well, it also comes with Ruth. And the way this plays out, it's a weird thing, like culturally, it's way different than us, right? We have some weird things in our own culture that we just don't even acknowledge. Mm -hmm. So, the way that this is going to play out marriage-wise is that Ruth would marry this, this, this Goel, but then the firstborn son would actually be Elimelech's lineage and Maclone's lineage, not the Redeemer's lineage. Mm -hmm. So that that family line stays in place. This is the Hessiness that comes into play. It's a sacrificial way of life so that others benefit more than you way different than we think, yeah. right? Maybe there's something we can glean from it, though. Mm -hmm. So, anyway, so Boaz brings up the idea of Ruth, and that person was like, I can't do it. I do not want to impair my own inheritance. Mm -hmm. So that, so he'll take on the other avenue of revenue, the place of revenue, right? The field and all that, but I'm not dividing my inheritance. So Boaz assumes the role of Goel, and he redeems and he restores at his own cost. Man, I wish we had somebody who would do that too. Right? So he steps into this and he's like, hey, let's do this. Let's take place. Let's let's make this whole path. The whole passage takes place. Hands each other sandals. It's weird. Don't like it. I don't have time for that thing. Unless you're a foot person, which whatever. So that's just weird in general, right? But why do business with sandals? This is how they did it. We shake hands, they exchange sandals. And then Ruth itself, the book of Ruth, ends with this amazing climactic event. Here's, the, here's how it ends. Genealogy. Sounds great. Awesome. Verse 18, chapter 4. Then this is the family of line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the family of Ram. Uh, Ram was the father of Abinadab. Abinadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Solomon. Solomon the father of Boaz. Boaz the father of Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, who's the king, a thousand years before Jesus, David and Goliath, that whole thing. 
This is crucial, right? This is one of the books, like the book of Ruth has very mentioned, like very few mentions of the word of God or God himself, right? I want to go to one place where God is at himself mentioned. Here's what it says in chapter 4, verse 15. Boaz has redeemed Ruth. They've gone through the marriage and all that. Boaz took Ruth uh, to become his wife. He made love to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive. And she gave birth. While the Lord isn't mentioned often, that does not mean the Lord is absent from his story. He's hidden. While the Lord may not be mentioned in your story, that does not mean he's absent. He may just be hidden. So let's go back to chapter 1. We're going to very quickly find out where he's been hidden. All right? So instead of the family dealing with root causes, they deal with the symptoms, they go to Moab, leaving Bethlehem, right? And for whatever reason, out of all the Moabite women, Ruth marries Mechel. This lady of Hesedness somehow chose to marry Mechel. Their families decided, yep, let's do this, let's make this happen, right? And at Naomi's worst place in life, where literally she is alone, she clings to Naomi. Maybe the people in your life are not there by accident. Maybe God is orchestrating something so that you are never alone in your worst place. Maybe that person you can't stand at work is still there too for some reason. Right? Maybe God is orchestrating all of the people. It's like a spider web just kind of in there, right? And so at, at Naomi's very worst place, point in life, she clings to, she's being clinged to by this lady who just happened to marry her son. And she's tragically abandoned as well. But, have you ever made a decision that has left you exposed and lacking? And you feel all alone. Like, you feel abandoned. You feel like there's no way nobody else cares about me. Been there too. I'm going to tell you all the stories because some of them are not legal. But, been there, right? And it's, that's reality of life. And yet God is still somehow orchestrating things behind the scenes, redeeming and restoring you and protecting you in ways that you don't even have a clue. Yeah. Talked about this last week when my mom was here. Like, I was about to go do something that was a permanent decision. We've talked about this before. We don't make permanent decisions on temporary emotions. Let them flop, let's just let them go and then you can make a temporary decision. But in that moment, I realized, I was like, I can make a horrible decision. And my mom just simply asked, hey, can you start praying for us? And we had a team of people in our church start praying for me at age 16. And think about this. When, when Naomi and Ruth show back up to Bethlehem, there's a guy named Boaz. And Boaz is living in a way countercultural to the culture around him. And he catches their attention. And they have the ability to glean in his field because he's deciding not to live so gratefully and take all the things, right? Fathers of Jesus, you and I doing the right thing, even in this countercultural lifestyle, does not mean that it's pointless. 
You just simply making your life decisions based on the word of God, based on the Christ-likeness that you see in his example, could provide and protect people you have no clue for. It could somehow get their attention. You not consuming every part of your paycheck so that you leave margin to be generous, to do a random act of kindness, could somehow be that thing that gets their attention. You giving a month on a monthly basis to Destiny Rescue so could rescue and redeem people you have no clue that you'll never even meet. Little, little kids, victims of human trafficking around the world. There's more slaves today than there ever have been in human history. And we need to be aware of that. That's not something you just dig your head to the ground and be ignored by, right? So, gleaning itself is a humbling practice. It's not, our, it's not our sin that separates us from God, but it's our pride that separates us from God. Are you willing to humble yourself and admit your sins? Are you willing to humble yourself and accept the grace and the, and the redemption from our Redeemer, our own Redeemer? That's part of this process. And so, with that, let's go to Matthew. I think Matthew is somehow like, gives us a glimpse of the why Boaz lives this way. Matthew has his own list of genealogies. This is how, like, is the best announcement. Like, think about this. In the, biblical, in the biblical world, God has been silent for 400 years between the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament. And his announcement, the way that he wants to start off his massive announcement, was a list of genealogies. So let's pick it up. So, Matthew chapter, uh, 1, verse 4. Ram is the father of Abinadab, but Abinadab was the father of uh, Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Solomon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. Did you pick up on any of these? Who was Boaz's mom? Rahab. Rahab the prostitute from Jericho. When you've, uh, when you've experienced transformation, when you've experienced the grace and the redemption and the transformation, it changes the way you live your life. It changes the way you raise your kids. When you live on tradition and tradition alone, very little transformation. And I'm not, I'm not knocking tradition. I'm saying there has to be a point of this. You have to get to the point of why do we do what we do? Am I just simply living my life because this is what I've always done and just checking boxes off? Or am I actually setting my, my future generations up to provide and protect for people who are weak and vulnerable and need cared for? Or am I living so gratefully that I'm just going to consume every ounce of my time and my own paycheck so it's all about me? Whenever there's a, a woman listed in the genealogy, she should bring, in the ancient world, it's for raise your little spidey sense. If there's a list of genealogy lists and there's five women, that shouldn't really catch your attention. Especially three out of the five women are not Jewish people. Tamar was a Canaanite lady. Rahab was a prostitute who's a Canaanite woman. Ruth is a Moabite. By the time of David, Jesus, the lineage of David is less and less, it's actually less, percentage-wise, less Jewish than Gentile. And yet, here we think about this. Is Jesus here just to redeem the Jewish people? No. We, we, we have these glimpses all the way through, at least all the way through Jesus' genealogy 
of these glimpses of redemption. And not just for a family, not just for a village, not just for a region, not just for a nation, but for all humanity. And we're part of that redemption story. This is not just an idea of like, oh, it's a sweet little story, and like, as you said, a chick flick, right? The book, the book of Ruth is our story. You and I have all been exposed, lacking, needed provision, needed protection. We've all need a Goel, a redeemer. And Jesus steps into our positions and, and redeems us and restores us. But we have to be willing to humble ourselves. It's a partnership. Without God, we can't. And without us, God won't. Are you willing to humble yourself and be redeemed? Well, Lisa and Russell are going to come up and lead us in worship. And as this uh, takes place, I just hope this becomes your prayer for you in this season.